And so with that, let's turn to Luke 5, verses 33 through 39. Jesus said to them, I'm sorry, the Pharisees said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says the old is better. Now, in order to appreciate the, this particular passage, you have to remember the context that we're in. And the context we're in was set by a story that happened uh, in our last dealing with Luke 5. And that is the story of Levi. Remember, Levi was a tax collector. He was despised by all. Uh, but he was... He was desperate for redemption. And when Jesus passes by and sees him as he is, Jesus says, follow me. And Luke says that Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then Levi does what, what new believers do. He throws a big party and invites all of his sinner friends to come and meet the one who changed his life. And it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a, it's a, big, a big party. And that's... Uh, that's why the Pharisees get very upset. Remember in verse 33, they begin to complain. They say, the, uh, they say um, why do your, your, you and, and your disciples, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the Pharisees, you know, are, are helping us to understand. They think that to be holy means to avoid everybody who is unholy. And remember how Jesus responds to that in verses 31 and 32. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here's what Jesus is saying. There are people everywhere who are spiritually sick and dying, and I am the cure. People who know they are sick and dying will receive the cure that I bring, but those who think that they are spiritually healthy will not. Now let's return to this context. The party at Levi's is still going on and the Pharisees continue to complain. In verse 33 they say, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But your disciples eat and drink. A little background about fasting. Fasting was a very common practice in first century Judaism. There was actually only one mandatory fast prescribed in the Old Testament, and it was the fast on the Day of Atonement. However, many first century Jews would also fast for a four-day period in remembrance of the destruction of Jerusalem back in the 6th century B.C. And then others, many, would fast for a single day, now and again, for any number of reasons. Some would fast uh, in mourning for the dead. Some would fast for, uh, as a sign of repentance. Some would fast as a means of preparation Others would fast in hopes of, of God's provision and intervention. Fasting was a, a practice then, and it still remains one today. That symbolizes a, 
of piety uh, and a deep devotion to God. Now, in addition to the general practice of fasting, the Pharisees in the first century were famous for fasting every Monday and Thursday. <laughs> every Monday and Thursday, they would fast in, in intercession for their country. Now, in theory, they fasted in private. But in actuality, we learn from Jesus in Matthew 6.16 that their fasting was hardly private because uh, they would walk around with disfigured faces, drawing attention to themselves. Their fasting had become a means of, of drawing attention to their religious piety. It lacked any true sense of desperation before God. But you always knew when it was Monday or Thursday. You know, you could just look at the, the faces of the Pharisees and you would know what day of the week it was. So here's the picture in my mind, because, you know, when you read the Bible, you have to read it with imagination. And putting all of that together, here's what the picture looks like to me. Jesus and his disciples are at Levi's house. There's a big party, and, and, and a lot of sinners, like Levi, are meeting Christ and experiencing forgiveness. There's great rejoicing and celebrating. The smell of roasting meat fills the air. There's laughter and singing, and it's a Monday. So not only is Jesus and his ragtag group of disciples hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, but they're feasting and drinking on a day that the Pharisees are fasting, and now their faces are really disfigured. You know, they're just, they're very irritable, because senseless, mindless religious practice often makes people resentful and bitter, and that's exactly the situation that we encounter here. But here's what I want you to see is that mindless religious practice has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Listen to how he responds to the whining of the Pharisees in verse 34. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now there's, there's a lot loaded into this, this little question here, and here's why. You see, many, many years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah had pictured the coming Messiah as a bridegroom. Isaiah 54, 5, for now your creator will be your husband. His name, the Lord God Almighty, your redeemer will be the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. You see, once again, Jesus is identifying himself as the Messiah. He is clearly stating that he's not just another religious man. He's not just a teacher or a rabbi. He's not a parallel figure to John the Baptist or the Pharisees. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, Isaiah said the Messiah would come as a bridegroom. He would be the redeemer, the God of the whole earth. Well, duh, I am him. I, and I am here. Why in the world would the wedding guest fast when the bridegroom is present? Now just note that there's no mention of the bride. There's the wedding guest, then there's the bridegroom. If Jesus, the Messiah, is the bridegroom, then who is the bride? The church is the bride. Here's what we learn from heaven as revealed to John in the book of Revelation. And I heard the voices of a huge crowd answering, Alleluia, the reign of our Lord, our God Almighty has begun. Let us be glad and joyful and give praise to God because this, listen, this is the time for the marriage of the Lamb. His bride is ready and she has been able to dress herself in dazzling white linen because her linen is made of the good deeds of the saints. Uh, Write this, happy are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Again, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, 
as beautiful as a bride dressed for her husband. You see, when Jesus and those who are being saved, that being the church, when they are together in the same place, it's a wedding feast. For a very brief period in our linear earthly history, Jesus and those who were being saved were together. They were physically together. But that time would quickly come to an end. That's why Jesus says in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. The marriage of the bridegroom and the bride has not yet taken place. The final consummation, the actual wedding, if you will, of Jesus the bridegroom and the bride the church will come at the end of this age. But on this day, described in Luke 5, Jesus is with those who are being redeemed. The bridegroom is in the presence of the bride-to-be. It's a party. And there's no call for fasting in that context. When people are saved, there is cause for celebration, not fasting. You know, after I got back from Africa this week, I, I called my mom since I forgot Mother's Day again. My mom, though, is, she's pretty cool. Uh, for the past several years, she's been working with an organization called Hope Cancer Ministries. And over the course of these many years, she has just journeyed beside many, many people who are suffering from cancer. And of course, many of those people have died due to cancer. But what's amazing and, and a bit ironic is that over the course of this time, mom has had cancer three times. Thyroid cancer once, ovarian cancer, and a reoccurrence of ovarian cancer. And yet she lives, and she's currently cancer-free. God saved her life. Now, mom should be dead, but instead she's alive. And for my mom, then, every day is a party. Every day is a cause for celebration and gratitude. She's seen what cancer can do, and she knows how fortunate she is that her life has been spared. And everyone in our family appreciates every day that mom continues to feel good and, and experience a cancer-free existence. And that's probably not the case for people who've never had cancer. But those of you who have survived cancer can relate, as can your families, with what I just said. Because saved people celebrate. And by the way, this is the picture. This picture that we see in Luke 5, this part of the celebration, this is consistent with everything we know about heaven. Heaven is not going to be a dirge. It will be a celebration like, like nothing you've ever seen. There will be more joy and more laughter than you've ever experienced. The music will overwhelm me. The food will be out of this world. You know, when Jesus tells us to pray in his prayer, say, pray that the kingdom of heaven will come and be made manifest here on earth. He's not telling us to become more religious or become more serious. He's saying, string up the lights, crank up the tunes, and serve the nachos. You see, because when Christ is in, in the house and people are being saved, it's cause for a huge party. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 15 that there is more rejoicing in heaven. There is literally dancing in the presence of angels when one sinner repents than when 99 people seem to be righteous and, and feel that they have no need of repenting. You see, the truest joy in this life that is available for you not to even touch or experience is at that moment when a person who is wrapped up in sin, a person who is bound for hell, is rescued by the blood of Christ through repentance and faith. I mean, that's the picture in Luke 5. Now, Jesus says, for a time, it won't be this way 
In verse 35, he's talking about a time when he'll be taken away from his bride. And he's obviously, he's referring to the cross. The bridegroom will be hijacked from the wedding and he will be taken away and, and, and the ceremony won't even be completed. And that bridegroom will be crucified. The death and resurrection of Jesus, though, will be necessary in order for the bride of Christ to be redeemed, for the church to be redeemed and made worthy of the bridegroom. So yes, a day for fasting will come, but not now, not on this day. And the Pharisees, they don't get that, nor will they ever. And you want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because self-satisfied people don't get Jesus. Self-satisfied people don't get Jesus. And that's what Jesus has been saying all along. The sick know that they need a cure. People who know they are sinful, like tax collectors, are eager for redemption. And when people who were once all but dead in their sins experience the cure, they also welcome and experience the change. You see, Jesus is both the cure and the change. That's why they have to throw a party. But people like the Pharisees who are self-satisfied either in their sinful lifestyles or in their religious piety are people who simply don't get Jesus. Instead, one of two things happens. One, self-satisfied people will try to integrate Jesus into their lives as an additive. Or two, they will simply refuse to consider Jesus because they're happy with the way things are. And let's consider both of those possibilities for a moment. First, Is it possible to simply add Jesus? Can we glean from the gospel whatever tastes good and leave out the rest? Can we simply integrate Jesus into our lives without a significant change in our lifestyle and behavior? Let me answer all those questions for you with just one word, no. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 36 and 38. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it upon an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. It will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Jesus is such a phenomenal teacher. These word pictures need very little commentary. You all know that a new piece of unshrunk cloth torn from a new garment will not work to patch up an old garment. As soon as the unshrunk garment a piece of cloth is washed, it will shrink, it'll tear even a bigger hole in the old garment, and now both the new and the old are ruined, plus they just don't match. The other pictures of of these ancient wineskins, which would be made of actual skin of a goat or a lamb, all the hair would be removed, it would be treated, and then sewn together in such a way as to hold wine. You see, the thing is, when new wine is poured into these skins, the fermentation process would create an expansion, and so the new wineskins being pliable would stretch, but over time, the skins would harden and even become brittle. So if new wineskin was poured into these old brittle skins, obviously when the fermentation process happens, it would crack the skins and both the wine and the skins would be ruined. The point is pretty clear. Don't even attempt to integrate the new with the old or you'll ruin both. This is, this is what he's saying. To follow Jesus is something new. Why? Because there's never been a Jesus before, nor will there ever be again. Jesus is something new, not something newer. 
Now rest assured, the old wineskin of God's law set the stage and created the context for Jesus. But Jesus is not an add-on to God's law. Jesus is not subject to God's law as just another religious man. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's law. He is the answer to the sin question. He is the singular atonement for human sin. He satisfies God's justice. There is no other satisfaction for God's justice. He is the lamb who was slain so that all those who repent of their sins and call upon his name might not perish but inherit eternal life. So consequently, Jesus is altogether unique and different from any other religious practice or any other religious figure. He cannot be integrated into the old patterns of religion. Neither will those who follow Christ conform to the old patterns of religious ritual. Listen, here's the point. We cannot dabble with Jesus. We cannot dabble with Jesus. We cannot try Jesus on to see if he improves the quality of our ride. We cannot apply Jesus to our pre-existing worldview and hope to make sense of it all. There is no light that can be shined upon the source of light. Instead, the light of the gospel must be applied to all other claims of truth, for the light of Christ is primary. All other realities are secondary. That's what he's saying. And this accounts for why Peter, James, John, and Levi all had the same response when they had this confrontation with with Jesus as sinners desperate for redemption. What did they do? Luke says this, they left everything and followed him. Why would they do that? Here's why, Jesus is a game changer. There is no other savior. You know, think back to, to the Old Testament. It is the exclusive, specific revelation of God's activity from the beginning of human history. And from its outset in Genesis 3, the Old Testament points to God's redemptive plan. God will save people from themselves. He will redeem what was broken when sin was brought into the world. He will send a Messiah, one that will crush the head of our enemy. And here's what then we learn in the New Testament. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's redemptive plan. He's not a plan. He is the plan. There is no other Savior. That's why Jesus is something new. And that's why Jesus won't fit into something old. But here's the problem. People who are self-satisfied do not truly believe they need a Savior. They don't get the seriousness of their condition. And so consequently, they don't get the primacy of Jesus. Because they don't see their need for a cure, they view Jesus as an optional nutritional supplement. Now rest assured, There are lots of these kind of people who fill the pews of churches all over the world every Sunday. These good religious people are all for saying some magical prayer that assures that they'll go to heaven when they die just in case there happens to be a heaven and a hell. These self-satisfied people may find some of the New Testament teachings ethically informative and helpful in raising their kids. They're often interested in helping the poor and less fortunate because they assume that everyone has the right to be as self-satisfied as they are. But the truth is, they don't get Jesus. They dabble with Jesus. They try to integrate Jesus, and it doesn't work. One of the hardest groups of people to reach with the gospel are those who have dabbled with Jesus in the past, who tried Jesus and found that it didn't do much for them. Well, duh. Duh. 
You cannot add new wine into old wineskins. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to change everything in you. You see, here's the deal. You don't get the cure without the change. Jesus is both the cure and the change. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You know, dabbling with Jesus is like dabbling with chemotherapy. You're going to make yourself sick and miserable and cure nothing. You only dabble with chemotherapy if you've grown content with living with cancer. But if you know the cancer is terminal, you commit yourself to the full treatment because it's a matter of life and death. Adding Jesus or integrating Jesus into a self-satisfied lifestyle is not an option. That new wine will destroy your old wineskin and nothing will be saved. The second alternative for self-satisfied people is even worse. They won't even consider Jesus. Listen to what Christ says in verse 39. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. He understands human nature so well. He recognizes that these self-satisfied Pharisees won't get the gospel because they're happy with the old traditions and religious customs of Judaism. They are convinced that they've got it figured out. Life is working, and they feel justified in doing what they're doing. You know, verse 39, this little parable, this is how it translates in our culture. I hear this all the time. People will say to me things like, I mean, even, even my own brothers at times will say things like this to me. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm no worse than most of the people I know who go to church. At least I'm not a hypocrite. And I'm pretty happy with my life. I'm pretty content doing what I'm doing. I don't need all of that Jesus stuff. You know why they say that? They say that because for the past hundred years, preachers have stood before congregations, evangelists have stood in front of huge crowds and tried to convince people that they need Jesus in order to improve the quality of their lives. We've promised people happiness and contentment and enduring peace if they accept Jesus. We said things like, Jesus will improve the quality of your life. He'll give you a better marriage. He'll make you feel good inside. But can you see the problem with this? If people already feel good inside, if they believe they already have a strong marriage, if they believe they're already generally contented, they will quickly conclude, no thanks, I'm good. Thanks for offering Jesus, but I'll pass for now. I'm happy with my life the way it is. Church, listen to me. Don't tell damned and perishing souls that Jesus will improve their ride. That's a lie. Jesus derails our ride. Following Jesus will demand everything we are and everything we have. Following Jesus may likely lead to persecution, insults, spiritual attack, and increased suffering. Tell the truth. Don't lie to people by telling them Jesus will improve the quality of their ride. Instead, tell them about God's law and point out their cancer. Make sure they know that cancer of the soul leads to spiritual death forever. It doesn't matter how happy or peaceful or successful they may appear. You've never met anybody who doesn't have a terminal condition called sin. And the penalty of sin is death. And we are all sinners. After they understand the disease, then tell them about the cure. 
If they're desperate for the cure, they will welcome the change. Remember, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. So how do we know if we've been forgiven? How do we know if we've received the cure? Quite simple, look for the change. New wineskins are, are, are commanded by the presence of new wine. Listen, Jesus is looking for people who know they have cancer of the soul. He's looking for those who are desperate for redemption. And I invite you to confess your condition and call upon the name of the Lord. Ask for the cure. But know this, Jesus will not only save your life, he will claim it as his own. He is not just our Savior, he is also our Lord. And he is jealous for us like a husband for a bride. He will not share us. You cannot integrate him or assimilate him into your life. He loves us too much for that. So call upon his name, but know this, that should you call upon his name, should you ask for the cure, he will call you to follow him, to trust him, to live according to his word and to serve him forever. The promise of the gospel is not a better life. It is eternal life. It is life with him. The choice is yours, but it is a choice. It is not an addition. Will you pray with me? Lord, we repent for every time we have been so arrogant as to dabble with you. You are God of the universe. You were the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. We are just in awe by that. And we are aware of our condition. The signs are obvious. The diagnosis is certain. There is sin that lives within us that has reign over our lives and without the intervention of the cure. we will receive what we deserve forever. Father, I pray that we will be humbled in heart, crushed, and fully prepared to beg for this cure of Jesus Christ on the cross, the blood of of Jesus covering us, and that we would welcome the change, that you would derail our ride and point us in the direction that you'd have us to go and fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit that we can bring you glory because you're the only one who saves. Forgive us for dabbling. Forgive us for being so content and so self-satisfied that we're annoyed to even consider the claims of the gospel revealed to us how it actually is. That there is only one hope for those who are dying of this chronic sinful condition of the soul, and that is Jesus Christ. I pray today that even one soul will humble himself or herself and call upon the name of Christ, welcoming the cure and the change. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.